everyone. I'm here with uh, Helen Lord, who's the uh, the CEO of the Vulnerability Registration Service. Um, Helen, thanks very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. So today we're going to talk a little bit about, I suppose, vulnerability and VRS and some of the other things that you see. What are some of the, se- the trends you've seen, I suppose, over the, the pandemic and, um, you know, over the last 12 months or so? I mean, vulnerability has been a bit of a topic, but I suppose it's also going to be a bit of an increasing topic too. It is an increasing topic. I think the main thing that we've seen in terms of people registering with us is there is a bigger tendency to refer to mental health issues, which I think we we can all relate to the circumstances we've been in. Obviously, indebtedness and a concern as much as anything else about falling into debt, things around falling into debt in terms of um, rental or mortgage payments, um, council tax payments, that type of thing. And certainly a larger bit, we did a we did a recent survey and I think about 10% of people actually had a fear of failing to make payments on their home, falling into the potential for, for eviction, which is a scary amount of people really. And I think the reality is, you know, furlough coming to an end, all those sort of payment holidays coming to an end, we're going to see more, I'm afraid, around indebtedness and people being in vulnerable positions because of that. Have you seen the change sort of, or the mix in particular of like types of vulnerability change over the last sort of 12 months that we've gone through this? I mean, I was looking at some of your data. I mean, COVID did come up as one of the reasons actually, but also there's there's mental health and everything's kind of linked. I mean, have you seen sort of changes in mix as you sort of gone over the last 12 months? Yeah, I mean, we're a growing database and more and more people are registering. And I think the the trends and what people highlight to us will change over time. But the biggest area is undoubtedly mental health and mental health tends to be coupled with indebtedness often. And I think we know we know that from previous surveys, pe- previous stats that have been done, but people just aren't vulnerable with one thing. It, it's one thing mm. leads to another, and that's undoubtedly the case. And do you think that's going to change going forward as we sort of, as we go forward? I mean, do you think there's more stress on people now than there was, say, a year ago, let alone like two years ago? We talk about the pandemic and the stresses and strains that pe- pe- people were under, and, and we all face that. But I think there was a little bit of a stay of execution in some respects people weren't going out doing things you know the day-to-day pressures in some respects were taken away around things like debt and that sort of thing and and that's coming back to roost so I think we're going to have a long way out of that in those terms and of course we've got the end of some of the furlough support and it's been sort of tapering for a while but I mean that's that's coming up potential changes and things like universal credit do you think that will flow through I definitely think it's all going to have an impact I mean if, if people were having problems I mean furlough as I say it's, it's almost a delaying tactic in, in that sense and in terms of collections and stuff that's you know com- going to come back thick and fast and it is going to impact people coming from all directions in a sense because the normal sort of flow of of collections etc is going to start from all organizations all, all at the same time so when we talk about people being overwhelmed when dealing with debt they are going to be overwhelmed because if they owe pockets of different organizations money that's all going to come and impact at the same time looking through some of the, some of the, the data that you had out there it was quite interesting in terms of like the age range around vulnerability it was one of the areas that i thought was um, of interest and it seemed like it was you had it in that sort of like 25 to 35 kind of range and that kind of surprised me a little bit i suppose versus you know maybe looking at like slightly, slightly older demographic versus not i mean if, is that just the function of the data that you've got or, or is it like a root cause in there with no you know, I think it's telling us something. I mean, if you look at a graph um, of the people that are registering with us, it's a downward curve. It's a straight downward curve from the younger part of society down to the older group. Now, clearly, 
we know that older people are going to be more likely to be in vulnerable situations. You only have to start to look at the amount of people over 85, you know, 850,000, 900,000 people suffering from dementia in the UK. But clearly, younger people are more comfortable, I would say, with identifying and, and putting their hands up and saying, I've got a vulnerability issue. Now, that might partly be just the way society is. It may be that older people have a bit more of a stoicism around it, put their hand up and say they're vulnerable but certainly younger people and again particularly in relation to mental health issues they are the ones that are identifying as vulnerable and I, I think the other important thing to bear in mind about that is these are very often the people that aren't on the credit ladder they might be venturing out for the first time getting lines of credit etc so their vulnerability can be almost less visible in, in the checks that we normally make around things like financial services, insurance, utilities, all those areas. And, and I suppose that kind of age group is also tends to be quite a, a time of peak financial stress as well, because people have got families, they've got outgoings, they might have rental, they'll have, you know, they, they have less savings, those kind of things as well. I mean, it probably links to that as well. Yeah, and, and sometimes still still sitting on the student loan wait, waiting to be paid back. So, yeah, it, it, it is a lot to deal with all, all at once. I mean, in, in some ways, I think we need to see it as a, as a positive in, in that younger people are comfortable with volunteering the fact that they, they may have difficulties. And, and I suppose that the whole concentration we've had around mental health is, is driving towards that and, and saying, you know, you need to be able to talk about it, whereas perhaps the older generation aren't comfortable with it. And do you think that comes across? So, so traditionally, we've always thought of vulnerability as something that people don't want to talk about. You've got to get permission to record it. And it's sort of like and people are very resistant around talking about it. Do you think attitudes to that are changing? And, and, and again, you had another stat around, is it 56 percent of people were quite happy to say that, you know, their circumstances had changed. They might be in a vulnerable situation, which which was higher than maybe I had originally thought. I mean, do you think there's a, a much greater acceptance now than there's ever been? And do you think it's driven by that younger demographic, as you just said? I do. I, I think there's a certain amount of stigma always attached to, to sort of putting your hand on and admitting to things. But I think there's a little bit of us assuming that people aren't prepared to say they're vulnerable. There's a lot of discussion that we have about whether we should use the term vulnerable. And I, I, I buy into that and I understand that. But we have to call it something. We have to, And vulnerability mm-hmm. is the term that's used certainly in financial services, in, in, in energy, in all those areas. So I think by starting to call it something different, we're, we're perhaps detracting from providing those people with the support they need. We're making it even more difficult in, in the short term. And yes, so a lot of people, 34% of the people that we we asked would say that they are in a vulnerable situation that doesn't mean to say they all want to go onto a register but a lot of those people said if they were asked they would be prepared to say so in order to get organizations to take their circumstances into consideration and and felt indeed that if that information is held it should be taken into consideration and factored into their dealings with them so if there's the preparedness out there to volunteer that information, then, you know, I, I really feel it should be used. And do you think that is that translating to, to, to more people to come into you as a service? It's almost like self-identify and sort of you know, that process coming through. The more end users, the more, more clients, if you like, that we have that are checking our register, the more justification I've got to go out and shout about it and say, look, do you want to register with it with us? Because the organisations you're dealing with are checking and they will take that into consideration. 
registration. Yeah, we're seeing an upward curve of, of registrations from individuals themselves. We're also very keen to encourage people where there's a a power of attorney in place where somebody's a carer for somebody to, to register on their behalf because obviously those people are very vulnerable. But there's a, there's an upward trend generally in the people that are registering with us from, from whatever source that might be. And what's been the reaction to, from a business point of view from people like taking the service because you know obviously it provides an extra piece of information, layer of information to understand your customer base, uh, but potentially at least get get insight into it. I mean, are you seeing greater acceptance of that? Is that and do you think the the pandemic in particular, do you think that's that's going to drive it even further as we sort of go forward? The pandemic has undoubtedly driven it forward. Regulator pressure is the is the big influence on organizations starting mm. to act more than more than anything else receptiveness it varies organization to organization and sector to sector some sectors are better at others than at really engaging i think the barriers to making things happen and start using this sort of data are primarily a fear of data protection we had gdpr a, a couple of years ago and i, I think it, it scared everybody to the extent that they think they can't share data whereas the reality is of course they can as long as it's done in the right way with the right safeguards there's nothing to mm. stop that happening and of course we're very conscious of that we i mean we know that we're sitting on a database without sort of extreme detail about individuals but we know it relates to vulnerable people and, and we have to be cognizant of that all the time and then it's priorities and, and resource as with anything else it's how much effort is involved in integrating our database into the decision making process or the customer journey journey of organizations so what we really try and do with that is it is as simple as we can make it it's um, reasonable in terms of as price we're a not-for-profit organization but also working as much as we can and, and it's a sort of work in progress we will work with organizations that already provide solutions to companies whether that be affordability whether it be credit referencing fraud prevention anything like that if we can provide the vulnerability data through those sort of intermediaries if you like it makes it simpler for the end user to, to work with us as well and I suppose it becomes an extra external piece of information to to then drive just to drive decisions or drive conversations to then drive a decision I would say so like how do you segment and just make sure you get that flag up front yeah, and I think the other thing is that we get questioned whether our database is too big to be manageable or too small to be manageable. I mean, the reality is half the population, half a customer base isn't going to register as vulnerable. You are going to get some of your customers are going to be identified as vulnerable. And those are the, the people that need specialist attention. They may need communicating within a different way and they need to be managed in, in the right way, but it shouldn't be ridiculously resource hung, hungry. It just needs the right processes in place to manage them. And I suppose if someone's self-identified, even when they then call in, if they weren't, if it wasn't then flowed through, they'd self-identify anyway. So it's kind of like it's uh, you're just getting pre-warning of what's at, what the situation is anyway. Absolutely. The difference may be that they, they've spent half an hour on the phone that they might not have needed to do. It might be yeah. appropriate to refer them through to somebody. It, it may be that they've given offered the wrong sort of product or service when that could potentially be bypassed. I mean, one of the conversations I have a lot is we know who our vulnerable customers are. Well, yes, you might. And that's that's great. But that customer of yours is going to 
have touch points or relationships with at least another 10, probably 20 different organisations. Yeah. And it would be great if they don't have to repeat that to all of those 10, 20 other organisations. I suppose yeah, rather than going through the same information that they've gone through 10 or 20 times before, you can just get straight to the point and sort of you know, have an informed conversation rather than having to gather all that information. Absolutely. And that I think that is the one biggest frustration that is ever communicated to us from people is that, I mean, it's it, certainly if, if, say, it was a mental health issue or it's, a, it's a, a relationship breakdown or something like that, you don't want to speak to four people in a customer service team and tell them the same thing before you get to the right person. Yeah, so rather than driving decisions, it can drive the process to make the process more efficient for and a better outcome, get to the outcome better, a better outcome quicker. Absolutely. And I think it's the outcome that's important. I mean, registering as vulnerable doesn't mean you're going to get, you don't have to pay your debts back um, or anything like that. It, it just means that the, the, the way that is handled can be dealt with in a more positive way. As we come out of the pandemic, do you think that financial services or utilities, we're going to have to deal with collections processes uh, and particularly accounts and arrears? in a different way than we've done before? Do you think it's going to change strategy or do you think it's just going to change maybe the nature of, uh, of things? I mean, what's what's your kind of view on that? I don't, I don't know if it's just because of the pandemic. I just think there's going to be more of it and I think it's going to be a, a sort of intense effect on a, on a lot of people. And I know organisations that are, and there's a lot of consideration about this, how do we communicate with people? What's the best way to communicate with people? And that's different. People's circumstances are different. You can't predict how somebody's going to react. So obviously, an elderly person, on the whole, not always, but may not want to be driven down the internet to get to get help. Similarly, somebody in debt might not want to be having that face-to-face -face conversation with somebody who might want help on a, in, a, in an online environment. You know, it's, it's really adjusting to that and, and taking that into consideration. And I know there's an appetite to do that at the moment, and there is a focus on, on how best to talk to people and how best to deal with people. I was thinking really around, I suppose, yeah, strategy and whether vulnerable is going to become much more of an interest, uh, an important strategy. Um, you know, and, and where, where does it go from here, I suppose? We, you know, we've talked very much around vulnerability has been on the on, on the regulator radar for, for quite a long time. It's been pushed pushed within the industry. The industry's had to respond. You know, it's been extended from, you know, maybe uh, vulnerability around age. It's been extended around vulnerability around, um, you know, potential illness to we've got mental health now included, gambling's now included. There's lots of areas of, of other areas of vulnerability that have been included. I mean, where, where do you think we go from now? The reality is that there needs to be more action. So there's an awareness out there. Um, a lot of organisations have pulled together their vulnerability teams. There's a lot of recognition that those individuals dealing with vulnerable customers need, need to have the appropriate level of training. But giving it lip service and just saying, well, I've got a vulnerability team doesn't actually answer the question. It needs to be broader than that and it needs to be more embedded in the organisation. So it, it really takes action. So I think there's, there's two things that I've seen. There's what we're doing in terms of identifying vulnerability. And I think what we do is actually flag up genuinely vulnerable people. And those are people that need their story heard or need to be understood you, you're talking about people with court protection orders who shouldn't be applying for finance whose, whose financial affairs are being managed by somebody else who you know that the anecdotal thing that always crops up is you know these people are going out and getting mobile phones left right and center and they shouldn't be and that can be flagged mm. up we're taking on data in in relation to people that are in 
abusive relationships that are suffering from financial abuse. That data is not available anywhere else. We're starting to work in terms of victims of loan sharks who, quite frankly, have got more worries than whether they need to pay their utility bill or not. So it needs to be embedded. And I suppose the other thing that's happening a lot, which I would embrace, is there are a lot of models being built around predicting vulnerability but that's going to be financial vulnerability. You can't predict if somebody's going to be bereaved. You can't predict if somebody's going to be ill. You can't predict how somebody's going to be affected by something in terms of their mental health. So I think you balance the two things. You use those predictive models. But if you have got a fact in front of you saying this person is in this situation, they have say going back to the court of protection order against them. Hmm. Use it. And how far do you think those models can go right so I mean there'll always be cases you say of ones where you have I mean, models are never perfect right and 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 you're going to have instances where people have got you know life situations as you just explained or maybe you know, court situations those are always going to be sort of out from elsewhere and there's financial vulnerability and I suppose there's then other types of vulnerability almost like potential vulnerability how far do you think the models could go to predict some of that at least to give you another I mean and can that can the data that you've got be helpful in almost like solving for some of that as well because I, I would say it's almost like an, the data that we're sitting on is is enriching those models I guess mm. and so the analysis that we've done where there are vulnerability identifying vulnerability models it matches with what our data is telling us so our data is the factual the predictive models do seem to work and do mm. seem to be give an indication of who could potentially be in a vulnerable situation and what do you think the unreported vulnerability is you've obviously got reported vulnerability uh, and you create the models around that but then if you flow that through against a wider portfolio you're going to get well what is the unreported vulnerability as well which is the piece that's hard to get to is like how many people do you think are are in vulnerable situations and don't say anything, right? Which is it's kind of a, a concerning population. We don't know enough to be able to then do something about it. No, we don't. And I, I think there's st still a massive gap. We've got an awful, awful long way to go. But I think if somebody's vulnerable in one circumstance, they're going to be vulnerable in, in several different circumstances. So mm -hmm. my ideal, I guess, is to work with as many organisations that are offering support to individuals to try and do as much of a catch-all as is possible. So we speak to charities all the time. If you've got charities supporting elderly people, you know, somebody with dementia, whether it's just somebody dealing with a carer or somebody with dementia, and you sort of mm. pass it all on, you know, you're going to eventually sort of try and reach critical mass in enabling people to communicate. You can't, or I mean, you can't make people volunteer the fact that they're in vulnerable situation if they don't want to. I think my argument always is if they've gone to the extent of doing so, then let's let's take it into consideration. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's where you get into potential concerns around privacy and, and those kind of things in terms of like sharing that information, which your argument is it, it should be shared, I suppose. Yeah, and, and most of the time it can be done with explicit consent or, or the consent of somebody who has authority over somebody. It would only be in extreme circumstances where somebody is, it's a risk to the individual or, or otherwise that it would be shared. But that's also, you can also do that within the confines of data protection law right. if it's done in the appropriate safeguarded way. What's the strategy around just getting greater awareness around vulnerability? Do you think we've done enough um, as an industry? I mean, the regulators done a lot to mandate it for the industry but do you think it's done enough 
publicly to get people to recognize that if you're in a vulnerable situation, you need to say something. Have we done enough publicly, like from a PR point of view for the population? I mean, again, going back to our survey results, they would indicate that a lot of people don't think it would be taken into consideration if they did volunteer it. There's kind of no point in in flagging it up. Um, I'd go back to my point, but I think to an extent there is lip service around dealing with it. And I think the regulators encourage very, very strongly the, the best treatment of vulnerable people. But there isn't a great deal of action that's going to be taken if, if it's done wrongly. And that's what drives organisations to, to act if there's regulator action at the end of the day. So mm. Financial Conduct Authority, for example, are, I mean, there's there's a lot of work, huge amount of good work they've done around vulnerability, but they're not mandating that companies have to proactively identify it. So in, in simple terms, we're sitting on a, on a register of vulnerable people that should be used, but there's nothing to mandate a company to proactively come and come and check it at the moment. What about internationally? I know that you're you're a UK based uh, charity looking at UK. If you look at this sort of like the international landscape, the treatment of vulnerability seems like it varies by country. Um, do you ever have any other contact with 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 other markets or um, just looking at similar kind of initiatives from from elsewhere? From what what I've seen, the, there is there isn't a model exactly like VRS internationally out there but I think there's varying appetites if you, if you like to, to start to do it so I mean the little I know about um, say Australia they're moving towards more regulation around it there's more more focus and um, there's been talk in northern Europe about it and, and in the US I think these sort of models will will move forward gradually. I do think it's going to be an interesting time. I think the the next sort of like six six to six to eight months, particularly as the furlough ends, I suppose here, and then we sort of like it, it sort of flows forward, and those impacts kind of flow through the the collection cycle. How long do you think we've got until we would see a spike in volume? Do you think? Well, I think if if you think back to when we had the credit crunch and those issues mm. um, um, back in the, the the sort of 2000s, I don't think we saw the impact of that until a, a couple of you know. I think that's sort of fed out over a couple of three years because immediate things happen the impact of that doesn't stay immediately so if somebody's in massive debt now they've got organizations starting to chase them now for their debt the, the result of that might not play out for another 12 mm. 18 months and we might see more evictions we might see more homelessness I hope not but we'll, we'll have yeah. to see it does feel like you know, the impacts always seem a lot slower than we think, right? So we always like rush to say, well, like, there's going to be an impact in this point, but actually they get spread out on a much longer time frame than, than maybe we anticipate uh, repeatedly, right? Yeah, and I think it's it's because headline news is was all around the, the pandemic. I mean, those headlines will disappear. The, the after effects or the fallout for it probably won't hit that yeah. and it, it won't be so visible. Yeah. And we'll be seeing real sort of people impacts for a while yet, it looks like. So thanks very much for making the time. I, I really appreciate it. I mean, you, you've, you guys have got a great insight in terms of what's happening with vulnerability in the UK. Um, you know, and certainly you can sort of see it in terms of like, you know, providing information to really sort of help us on what might be a precipice of, you know, some, some further change that we're seeing in the in the UK market, at least anyway. So, so I, I really appreciate the insight. It's fascinating. No, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Speak to you soon.